I was introduced to Micah Tui by my student, Daniel Garrett. In our first conversation, Micah described himself as a chess historian, which immediately intrigued me because I view chess as a series of personal and tournament histories. The manner in which we play, analyze, and talk about the game today is, in many ways, almost wholly influenced by the masters of the past. I've been trying to meet with Micah for a few weeks, but the schedules haven't quite worked out. First, his elderly grandmother dropped in for a surprise visit. Then, I was home with a sick kid. Perhaps this is how life works in the Midwest, the heart of Americana. You do one thing, and then another, and before you know it, your time is filled, your days have reached max capacity, and you find no time left over to read a book, discover hidden stories from the past, or reflect on histories, be they yours or the world's. Finally, Micah offered to make me pasta and steak to compensate for the drive and have me over on a Tuesday evening. So, here I am, on a warm Tuesday in April, about to make the 30-minute trip to Morton, Illinois, and visit with one of the few professional chess historians left in the world, Mr. Micah Tui. You're in the Chess Underground. I'm here with Micah Tui, and I'm going to allow Micah to introduce himself in his own words. Hi, well, I'm Micah Joel Tui. I'm an English teacher and sometime poet. Uh, I only get paid for the first, not the latter, which means I'm either truly a genius and will be appreciated when I die, or I'm just better at teaching children how to write. I'm not really sure which, but, uh, you know, didn't call myself a gentleman thief. But if you're listening, Kurt, please know that it was just a joke. All right, so, um... Here with episode two of the Chess Underground, and I'm visiting with Micah Tui. Micah, the first time we met uh, was at the Bradley Winter Open, as I recall. First time I introduced myself to you, yes. Okay, so we met before, but... We were standing next to each other in a subway. So you introduced yourself to me. That's actually where I want to start. You introduced yourself to me as a quote-unquote chess historian. Yes. So... I have several questions about that. The first one, which is probably, well, maybe maybe not the easiest. I was going to say probably the easiest, but the first question is, what exactly is a chess historian? Well, there aren't too many professional chess historians out there. There's probably only one really famous one. You just stole my second question. Edward Winter. <laughs> uh, and so what begins as a chess historian... I don't think too many people have actually studied the history of chess as a discipline or read as much about it as I. For me, a lot of people who are in love with chess, they love going over the games, and they love learning about you know, the history of, of how the game has evolved, but there's not a lot of people who pay attention to the history that surrounds it. So I was very lucky when I was in junior college. I had this professor who shall remain nameless to protect the innocent and the guilty. Uh, he, well, the thing was, he knew who my father was, and every time he asked a question in our world history class, I raised my hand and I knew the answer. <laughs> and he knew why, because he knew who my father was. And so he's like, look... And just, just for our listeners, your father was a... Well, my, my father, uh, he was... My father was a historian, he was a classics uh, person who uh, knew the classics, and so they, they had known each other in graduate school. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, the point is, is that he told me that it was a waste of both his time and mine 
<laughs> for me to come to class every day. I think I was also maybe messing up his lecture rhythm because someone always raised their hand. Why are you disrupting my flow, man? Right. Yeah, and uh, anyway, so maybe if I just learned the art of what a rhetorical question is, I could have just... Anyway, he gave me the opportunity to do an independent study and to just do a term paper. But it would have to be a serious term paper. But he gave me the freedom to do it on anything I wanted to do it on. And so I recently met uh, someone by the name of Father Tom Taylor, who you've met. Mm -hmm. And he uh, had just started getting me interested in chess again. Because I'd never met anyone who really knew how to play chess well. I mean, I played as a kid, but... As you know, there are levels to this. Like, I didn't right. even know what a tactic was uh, at that point. Anyway, um, he super impressed me because I had just done a little bit of reading about chess. And he told me how in 1972 he'd gotten a draw on a simul against Anatoly Karpov, which, of course... No small tests. Yeah, like, and I was like, what? You know, and I you know, was super excited. And so, for me, because of all of this that was kind of going on, I said, you know, I would love to do... A history of the World Chess Championship. And there really wasn't a lot. I mean, there have been a lot of books that have been written about the history of the World Chess Championship, but there wasn't a lot out there aside from Edward Winter. And this is still, you know, this is still like 2005, so the internet hasn't expanded like it is now. So I just started with the history of the World Chess Championship and everything going on. And I was just utterly fascinated uh, because if you remember, you know, this is like spring 2005. You know, there was a divided, there was right. a divided world title, Correct. and so it was it was the best possible time to be studying the history of the World Chess Championship because nothing was settled. As I recall at the time, it was FIDE, right? There was Correct. there was FIDE, but there was also the PCA. Is that right? Well, <clears> the PCA <throat> was defunct. A lot of people just refer to it as the classical title, okay. the the, the, the right. Steinitz line that begins with you know William Steinitz winning the match against Johann Zuckertort in New York, St. Louis, and New Orleans in 1886. Mm. Um, interesting, though, and I don't want to get off on a tangent, when I do write my chess book that I am working on, my chess history, which I call A Game Evergreen, mm. which is my uh, uh, not-so-subtle shot to the, uh, the Immortal Game by David Schenk, where he seems to want to depict all chess players as neurotics. Uh, so I don't like don't like his book very much. It's a masterful work, massively researched, but he likes to portray chess players as crazy, which I don't like. But anyway, um, one of the interesting things I'm going to write in my book is I don't think the first official world championship should actually begin with science. I think it should begin with Morphy. And the reason why is because even though there wasn't an official world championship then, he was referred to in official telegrams by five heads of state as the world chess champion. Right. And he was the first person who really went around the world, who really unified the chess world. And they, there was, for the first time, definitely one player around the world who was clearly the best player in the world, having played everywhere except Russia. But the leading Russian master, Petrov, also himself referred to Morphy as the world chess champion and referred to Morphy as being his superior. So I would say he's the first because he's the pers person to be universally acknowledged as the world champion. But, as you know, mm -hmm. um, the official world championship began over 30 years after that, in 1886. And that, so that's why it's referred to as the classical title, meaning the world championship that you had to win in a match from the previous world champion, right. unless that world champion had died. Um, and so there was that split between the classical lineage line, kind of like the way you have a line in boxing. Right. And then there was the FIDE line, which... 
is similar to the way they do championships, say, in, like, professional basketball, where you don't have to, you know, defeat the reigning champion in a match. It's just there's a championship, and it's held every year. And I recall around that time there was Ponomaryov won one of those. Ponomaryov won in 2004. And who won the one in Las Vegas? Um, uh, I have difficulty saying his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's from Uzbekistan. It's like Kasimyanov. Oh, yes, yeah, something uh, like that. Rustam Kazimyanov. Rustam Kazimyanov, correct. Yeah. And uh, one of Gary Kasparov's last greatest game was at Linares in 2005, and he just destroyed him. And I think that was partly as a rebuke of mm-hmm. the FIDE system. But right, no, the... So Karpov was the FIDE world champion at first with the split. Mm-hmm. And then he played one match uh, against Kamsky, and that, I believe, was in 96. And then in 1998, they did a knockout. They did their kind of first knockout world championship. But the difference was is that Karpov was seated directly in the final. And so Karpov, uh, he drew Anand in the classical portion in 98. And then Anand, presumably from exhaustion, lost to Karpov in the rapids. And in the next year, when they did the next championship knockout tournament, they told Karpov he would have to be with everybody else. And he said no. And so he... Retired from professional chess, and then you had the Caliph man won. Right, that he was the one who won in Vegas, I believe. Okay, yeah, I didn't yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah. I didn't remember. Yeah, Alexander Caliph man, who was at the time rated in the forties in the world. I don't right. remember exactly where he was. He won ninety nine in two thousand. That was uh, that was a, uh, I believe it was Vichy Anand was next, uh, and then uh, after Anand. But but it, but I, I can it's Kalifman Anand Ponomaryov, and then uh, Kasa, yeah. Kasa Rustam yeah, Rustam, yeah. and so there was a lack of legitimacy in that. And the the interesting thing about when you when you look at the the world championship, and you you research the matches and to learn about chess history is chess, and a lot of people aren't going to like what I'm about to say, but. Chess is a lot like the International Olympic Committee or International FIFA. It has a history of a lot of international politics and international corruption and all sorts of shenanigans going on, particularly when the title was in the hands of the Soviet Union from 1948. You know, all, you know there was a brief interruption in 1972 to 75, but then again, right? And you know, and so the the great thing about it is you have this this art. You know, chess. It's, it's a science, it's an art, it's a sport, it's all of these different things. And what becomes so great about it when you learn about its history is there is a kind of... Uh, in, in junior college, one of my favorite people I ever studied was the great art historian Max Dvorak, and he wrote Kuntusgeschichte als Geistesgeschichte, which means the history of art is the history of ideas. More literally, it's art history is spiritual history. And it's interesting how when you really look at the history of chess, there is a very loose, it's, it's, it's loose, I mean, sometimes it's a stretch, but there really is an interesting cultural parallel to the evolution and the changing of ideas. So I think the most obvious one, and a lot of people think this is a stretch, but hypermodernism really emerges, you know, it becomes popular in the 20s, but it begins emerging before then. It begins emerging like... Turn of the century. Yeah, turn of the century. Think about the idea of, you know, the way to win is you send in a bunch of people to control the ground, right? 
Mm-hmm. And that's the classical model, you know, the, the strong pawn center. While hypermodernism is about controlling from the wings and things like that. Imagine that World War One is going on, right? And you literally have this advent of trench warfare and the fact that there has to be a whole reimagining of tactics. Mm-hmm. And it makes perfect sense that this is now the time where you have this rethinking of what is going to work in terms of this game of psychological warfare. Maybe this whole thing of just occupying the center with bonds, maybe there is another way to do it. And some people say, well, chess and combat aren't the same. And I go, no, but there is a very clear, there's a very clear parallel in the idea of targets from a distance can work. And so you might be the perfect, I'm going to interrupt you because you might be the perfect question, uh, perfect person to ask this question to. Okay. My layman's understanding mm-hmm. of the origins of chess mm-hmm. were, is that it was created um, as a game to train military commanders. How accurate is that? Is this just urban myth, urban legend? Do you know? Do you have There's, any insight on that? It, it's, a great, it's a great question. Uh, so right now, I'll plug myself a little bit. I'm the number one chess writer on Quora. That's the Q-U-O-R-A. I just hit one you million You left that out recently. of your self-introduction. I, I know. I'm so sorry. You should have led with that. I should have led bearing with that. You're bearing the lead. Uh, but there's a lot of people who ask, you know, should VC Anand be a military advisor for the Indian government? Or people, you know, why don't generals consult chess, you know, tactics people? So for, for our listeners, I need to interrupt so we can let them have a clear picture. Quora.com is a... It's basically Reddit for people who don't want to fall into the black hole of the internet. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's people who ask questions, and then mm. people who are qualified try to answer those questions. And there are a lot of people who ask chess questions on Core, usually people who are beginners who want tips right. for advice on how to get better. And what exactly statistic or metric make, makes you the number one question answer for chess questions on Quora. Right now, it goes by every 30 days. So okay. right now, in the last 30 days, I've had 300,000 views in the topic of chess. Wow. So, uh, I mean, it's probably a little under, it's probably more like 290 right now. You are educating the masses. I am, I'm trying to educate. In terms of the royal game. Indeed. Okay. Um, and so, and, and the thing is, is there's no doubt, in spite of the questions I get on this regularly, there's absolutely no good parallel between modern military strategy and chess like there's nothing like there's no it's it's completely useless to make that comparison sure. yeah. i mean offensive coordinators do not consult just grandmasters in designing their offenses you and, know that's and, actually one of the things that aggravates me the most is when i'm watching an nfl game yeah and the commentator oh it's a chess game out there and it, it, no it, it's not it's it's not <laughs> and, and it, it's not it, it, it's please com- stop it's, and, and not only is it not but it's also I feel like it does a disservice, right? So pu- to, public, to them. Sur- right? Like we're not, public we're not service saying, announcement to sportscasters. Like, like, please stop. Like, like the, the 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 increased complexity of what they're doing and the difficulty of what they're doing is, you know, because chess isn't more complicated than like doing offenses for football. It's just it's deeper. Different. It's deeper, it's right? Different. It goes it goes many 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 steps deeper. But in terms of the initial complexity of what's going on, I mean, it's greatly outstripped by soccer. Or football or whatever. Right. However, I would invite people, if they go on YouTube, to look for the battle between Alexander and the Persians, the big one. I think it's called Garganel. And it's the one where Alexander's army really routed the Persians and, and definitively won that war. If you see how, and then you, you know, you see those old timey history channel military maps and the way those blocks look on the map. Mm. 
Alexander riding Bucephalus right. toward, towards into battle. And right, so on and, 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 so and those kind of things. And when I see those old-time military maps with, and they show you know the, 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 those rectangles that symbolize units, I never really understood those maps because they're really things you need to see in motion. The reason why those maps exist is because generals did have those tables back in the day, and then you would see them move. You would mm-hmm. see the... Tr- right. So when you see the video and you see how... Yeah, they take they take the pointer and they slowly push the right, triangle right. forwards into the new territory. And so there is a definite parallel if you're going to think about Chaturanga, which is where that's the original, you know, because Chaturanga evolves into Chatrang, which then evolves into, uh, you know, European chess, which then evolves into modern European chess. There is definitely a kind of a link between that because if you think about it, right. Even though technically Chaturanga is Indian and not Persian, it went from India to Persia to the Muslim world to Europe. So there, there's this definite Persian influence that needs to be mentioned. The reason why that's important in terms of training military commanders is you can actually see how in that very in, in, in tactics that go from thousands of years ago, mm-hmm. when you're still talking about cavalry versus foot soldiers and troop movements, the idea of being able to calculate things like Tempe right. and being able to calculate how long will it take to get this unit over to here in order to create... Because how do you win in chess? You win in chess by gaining control of a board, gaining space, but the ultimate goal is somewhere you're creating a local superiority. Me personally, I just move the pieces around until the other guy messes up. That's, well, that's but, my plan. But, but, but ultimately, <laughs> right, you know that it's all yeah. about creating a local superiority somehow. Right. And that is exactly what that's exactly how you win in those old time military battles. You figure out Very good point, how yeah. you can create a local superiority by diverting the right amount of forces towards the king at the right time. Because if you remember, in those days it doesn't matter how many guys you lose. If you kill the other guy's king, it's over. And sometimes, yeah, the general takes over and kills you anyway. But that's generally not how it went. Once the other guy's king was dead, that resolved the dispute. Long live the new king. Because, you know, you're not supposed to kill whoever the new king is, you know. So literally, you know, in... uh, So, for example, you go back to 1485 when Richard III and Henry Tudor were fighting. The moment Richard III was gone, his entire army immediately swore fealty to the new king. Right? Because now... There's no one else in line. Like, just the, the rules and the way it was set up. So, so to answer your question, it could be true mm-hmm. that, that, that that is used. I don't know but if it we was... we don't have definitive if it was, was it created for that purpose? I don't know. It was definitely used for that purpose by the Persians at one point. Uh, and you can see how it can work. But the reason why it, it gets largely overblown, this idea of the military between, you know, is simply because the idea that... You're, you're treating men as units, and it is a it is a like a, a battle scenario, but the main similarity and why it became an instrument of training generals, it really had nothing to do with tactics. It really had to do more with seeing the whole picture, and that's right. that's the real difficult thing. And the other interesting thing about about chess, which makes it ideal in certain ways for training military commanders, is Let's say you have a kid. So if you're trying to make, you know, this four-year-old the next Jose Raul Capablanca, that's when Capa learned, was age four. You have to have this idea of what do you start with in order to give him the greatest advantage over everybody else. 
And the main thing, if you look at the Russian schools, the Armenian schools, what do they do that's different than teaching chess in the United States? They spend so much more time on just the chessboard. Understanding just the key geometric relationships between squares, whether it be diagonals, rooks, files, how many squares does it take to get the knight from here to here to here. They spend a ton of time with that because that's what often helps with later board visualization or just under it's it's what allows you to not miss tactics because you're just kind of in the back of your mind you understand the relationship between squares that becomes very key with training the military mind in some ways because the most important thing to understand when you're doing battle plans as a military commander is to understand how to use and make use of terrain like that's the thing people think that it's all about formations and getting your troops into a certain place Understanding terrain is like the key major thing that military people have to understand how to use. And right. so and, and that right. and in that sense, understanding the key elements of a chessboard becomes kind of a critical parallel. Yeah, you know, I've also always thought, um, as my experience, my background is very much influenced by coaching. You know, I have a lot of students that I've worked with over the years. And uh, certainly one of the things I've noticed, apart from some of the more, um, I guess, let's say, overt benefits you would think of from chess, uh, focus, spatial reasoning, which all would, of course, be helpful to military commanders, let's say. One of the big ones I've noticed as well is just discipline. Discipline not only in uh, how you approach finding a move or how you approach your, uh, your strategy at the board, but also discipline off the board, discipline in study, your study habits. Um, you know, discipline in what you're working on. Um, so I find that, like, generally speaking, you know, there are quite a few auxiliary benefits as well uh, of the game. Auxiliary is a good military pun, too. I think <laughs> I think the other thing, too... I'd like to say that I did that on purpose, but I feel like, speaking of Reddit, the pun patrol would be here, like, in a heartbeat. You know, I've actually never been on Reddit. I know mm -hmm. what it is, but I've been told it's the black hole of the internet, so an intellectual like me has to stay away. I understand. It's, yeah, there's, there's a pun patrol. It's like when you have, an, it's, it's like when you have like three uncles who are alcoholics and you just know you shouldn't start drinking, you know? Right. For me, it's the right. same thing with Reddit. I just know. You answer 300,000 questions on Quora, and you think, Reddit, I probably... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I guess Cora's like non-alcoholic beer for Reddit. Um, but the the interesting thing, though, the duels of Reddit, <laughs> the duels of Reddit. Yes, that uh, should be Cora's new slogan. That that would be an interesting. Last show we came up with a new slogan for Iowa, so mm. now we have a new slogan for. What's Quora. the new slogan for Iowa? We take our root beer very seriously. Interesting, you know. Thank you. Yeah. I as I every my alma mater is Western Illinois University. Every time I drive there, and it's very close to the Iowa border. Right. And so, you know, I try to find music on the radio, and it's country station after country station after country station, so yep. I already know how close I am to Iowa yep. as a result. Um, Having lived in Iowa for a very long time, that sounds all too familiar. So, well, literally sounds all too, but anyway. Oh, pun patrol. Yes. They're indeed. bad. Uh, but they're very serious. I mean, if you drop <laughs> even like a moderately, like, you know, like a questionable pun, <laughs> you're done the pun patrol and they call in reinforcements and the, it's it's um that's an interesting it's quite the experience to have the but, pun patrol but you alive. asked me you asked me what makes someone a chess historian and i think the key idea of what makes someone a chess historian is to understand that chess really does have a story and this story is not only is it shaped by the world champions but it's shaped by the politics it's shaped by how people how how you know you know how openings go in and out of favor, styles of play go in and out of favor, the game itself and how it is played and the rules 
has had a great evolution from Chaturanga to Chitrang to, uh, you know, pre-Mad Queen chess to post, you know, Isabella chess. Um, Isabella meaning Queen Isabella of Spain, the Mad Queen rules. By the way, they weren't calling her mad when they moved the Mad Queen. But anyway, the, chess has a story, and it's, it's a fascinating story because chess is one of those very few things that it's a lot like music or poetry. It can be kind of its own language, and it can be an almost universal language, like music can be, or math can be even. And it can connect people of so many different personality types. I think when people think of chess players, they often think of, you know, the engineer types, the mathematician types, the computer science types. Mikhail Tall was... Uh, but Mikhail Tall, who I was actually going to... You know, yeah. but, but he studied Pushkin. Right. You know, he was a literary guy. That's Yeah, that's and, right. And, 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 I'm, and I'm a literary guy As myself. So there, there are exceptions. You know, uh, it's true, Lasker was a, a doctor of mathematics, but he more considered himself more of a philosopher than he ever considered himself a doctor of math. But the point is, is it's... There's something about chess where I believe there is both the enjoyment of the aesthetic, that's where the art comes from, and then there's also kind of the search for truth, which is both an artistic and a philosophical and a scientific aspect. But at the same time, it's also a fight. And so there's everything that you need for good, a good story. You have the beauty element, the art element, the search for truth, and a fight. Everything that you need... You know, in a in sounds a like the description dramatic. of uh, the Princess Bride. Well, there you go. Uh, and so, uh, the point adventure fighting. You know, you know there's everything. Yeah. And so that's why it makes such a good story because, and it, it it literally is the game that just keeps giving. You know, people talk about more possible chess moves and atoms in the universe. To me, when you're talking about those, you know, unfathomable like numbers, I don't even know if there's any purpose in making the comparison, but. The point is it's a well that keeps giving, and it's going to be keeping giving, and it is a art and a discipline that every single world champion, every single player, they're trying to master it, whether they're trying to master an opponent, or they're trying to master themselves, or they're trying to master the truth of the game. There's, there's something that's kind of basically almost existential about chess, which is this idea, you know, Tartakauer, who's my favorite chess player, and I'm going to, when their podcast is over, I'm going to try to convince you to let me do an episode just on Tartar Coward. Because... I can probably be talked into that. Because uh, he is the greatest chess pun, quoter, witticism person Good thing ever. Pun Patrol was not around when Tartar Coward was <laughs> espousing his... Uh... Uh, well, who knows. But the, the thing is, is that when you think about... So for me... My original, you know, 50-page paper was just about the history of the World Chess Championship. But what I became particularly interested in, because it was also the same period of time when Kasparov is really beginning to get into the My Great Predecessor Project. So it was, again, it was a really perfect time yeah, for me. Yeah, I love to, those books. Those to are be, books. They really are. And yeah. I, I really love how he shares some of the anecdotes. And, again, a lot of the anecdotes that people share about chess, a lot of them are just fictitious anecdotes. But like a lot of history, which is made up, because, sorry, it's true, a lot of history is made up, oftentimes it gets to the truth of a thing, <laughs> whether or not it's actually... like. So, for example, there's a famous story about a night orphan tall. And I don't remember what year it is, but basically uh, a fan asks Miguel Nidorf, 
and by the way, he's he's from Poland and then he emigrated to Argentina because of the war. So to me, that's the weirdest name in the world because he's actually right. Mikhail, Mikhail Nydorf. Yeah. But he kept the first name when he went to Argentina, so Miguel Nydorf is the strangest name I've ever heard in my life. Anyway, so this fan asks Miguel Nydorf for his, uh, for his autograph and Miguel asks for a certain amount of money. I don't even remember how much it was. It wasn't that much. It was like $5, but still 5 or $10 back then. It's still pretty big money in the 50s or the early 60s. And Tall was a little horrified by this. I mean, he didn't show it too much, but, you know, and he gives Tall, Tall gives him the look after the fan leaves, and Miguel says, hey, Fisher would ask for 50 And Tall, big, the person that he is, then went around giving away, like, I don't remember if it was a dollar or a ruble or whatever it was. He then went around to all these fans and paid them to take his autograph. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's like, I'll give you a dollar. I'll give you a dollar if you take my autograph, right? And considering that he's still probably the most popular player, you know, who's been dead for decades, you know, of all time. I I don't think anybody, you know... The idea that that guy is paying people to take it... I mean, I'm pretty sure you'd take a dollar to take Misha Tall's autograph. Yeah, I'd, I'd let him <laughs> You know. Um, but that kind of a character, right? And the other reason why, it, to me, it's such a fascinating time and why I love becoming a chess historian was it really... There was something about it that was at the heart of the East-West conflict. Because the golden age of chess, in my opinion, is really about from the end of the Second World War probably to the, the triumph of Fisher, right? Like if, to me, that's kind of the golden age of chess. I think sure. That, yeah, I think most people would probably agree with that. Although I would also say, you know, we very well might be entering into another one here. Oh, absolutely. We have quite the, well, and, the group and, and of... And the, the technology and the advancement, I mean, nothing right. can compare to the way we're advancing now. But the period of advancement that happened during that Soviet period despite the fact they didn't yeah. have computers and databases, was just extraordinary. It was, I mean, yeah. it's kind of like, so now we're building, you know, we're building new rocket ships that can go to Mars, but I think that period of the Soviet time is kind of like when people were building the pyramids with, with only simple machines. I mean, I, that's what I would make the comparison to. They're building these incredible things. Right, They're doing incredible so many variations, incre- with, with very openings, with no... With, with no nothing, engine help. You know. yeah. And it reminds me of the story about how, you know, the United States during the space race, we spent a million dollars to create a pen that can ride in outer space and the Soviets used a pencil. Uh, <laughs> and I, I feel like that's... And so there's something about that golden age, the fact that every Moscow championship's a super tournament. Every Leningrad tournament's a super tournament. Right. And the sheer personalities and the political dissidents and the idea of people looking for freedom, I mean... I fell in love with a lot of the characters, particularly the characters of Vidvinik and Smyslov and Tall, and how you have three men, couldn't be more different in different ways. But Vinik, who was a true believer communist, you know, so he's oftentimes portrayed as a villain. I think that's somewhat unfair. You have Smyslov, who is a devout Orthodox Christian in the Soviet system, having to kind of work in the Soviet system. You've got Misha Tall, who is, you know, a secular Jew. Right. Who, by the way, Fisher did not know Tall was a Jew, and Tall made the joke. I would think the nose was a dead giveaway. <laughs> Tall said that, and so please don't get on me, people. I'm just quoting Misha Tall. Um, so you know, and uh, you know, and you have these characters, and they're in this time of this incredible, incredible political repression, and people are looking. But the, the the beautiful thing is, is that the desire to kind of find the truth of a position. Right, even amidst the oppression and even amidst everything that was going on, there was something about chess 
that could still connect East and West. Because Emmanuel Asker has that famous quote, lies and hypocrisy do not survive long over a chessboard. Yes, yeah, one of the one of my favorites. And, uh, you know, the, the, the checkmate, the combination, the checkmate contradicts the hypocrite. <clears throat> and, and I believe the same time period, Fisher said something like, there are no bluffs in chess. No, and I mean, well, and not if you know, not in a game where you have perfect knowledge. And the and here's what's so fascinating about why why I think it's so great historically. It showed the best and the worst of the Soviet Union. It really did because the effort that they put into their chess machine, it really showed what that kind of centralized planning can do. It really did show a lot of the beauty of it. Of how, you know, of, of what it could do. At the same time, with the politics and how people were favored and how you couldn't necessarily be a political dissident or, or you had to be a person of enough status in order to be able to be a dissident. You know, uh, Spassky was seen with, you know, Solzhenitsyn. There are times when Spassky was seen carrying Solzhenitsyn books um, and, and things like that. You know, Smyslov was not apologetic about his, uh, you know, about, about his beliefs not being a communist. Uh, but Vinnick, who was a true believer, he was horrified by some of the corruption that went on, even though sometimes it seemed he used the system to his advantage. It really, it's such a, an interesting, integral time period. And the other reason why it was such a great chess historian is, you know, why I fell in love with it is I've always fallen in love with the aesthetic of chess. The first time I saw a chess set, I was blown away. I was mesmerized. It was like falling in love. And... I fell in love again as an adult when I saw a particular chess set. When I saw the uh, the Dubrovnik chess set, the Dubrovnik Two, that was fit the uh, chess set that Fisher liked to play with on all those videos. You know, his his practice set. And I noticed it was different than a Western set. I noticed, you know, it didn't have the cross at the top. It didn't have, you know, it had the opposite <clears throat> right. color balls. It had all these things. For me, when I saw that, I was just I don't know why. There was something about the elegance and the simplicity of it that just blew me away. And then all of a sudden I was like, wow, is, is that chess set, you know, without the religious symbolism, is this like a symbol of, of, of Russian chess dominance? It really wasn't, but that's what, what I thought at the time. Because, you made the connection because of your historical background. Right. I mean, I thought I thought that the ball was like to make it a not religious king. It's just a czarist crown. Almost like the uh, ball at the top of the Kremlin, right? The spy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it, was, it was a mistaken assumption on my part. But the point is, is that there was just so much drama. And, and, and that's the thing, like, chess really is a drama. I mean, if you, if you go to a tournament and you talk to almost any player about whether they win or, lo- win or they lose... They'll tell you a story. They'll tell you a story, yeah. and it's, it's... Well, I was looking at this, and then I got a little sick, and the guy next to me coughed. Right. And, and, yeah, and, and it's, it's amazing how it's epic in their, like, in their experience. It's an epic struggle. It's, it's always epic. And and because Lasker's right when he's uh, Emmanuel Lasker's right when he says the essence of chess is a fight, Mm. people forget that it doesn't matter if it's a uh, a boxing match, even if it's like a friendly boxing match, it's still a boxing match. Right. (laughs) I mean, you're you're getting hit, and you're hitting another guy. Right. And and that that and and so. Yeah, you know, I've played close to five hundred rated tournaments now. I'm approaching that Mm -hmm. that milestone, and many more unrated. And I will tell you, every time I go off to play one, I feel like I'm marching into battle. You know, I, where's my lance? You know, where's my, where's my phalanx here? Um, yeah. It, and, that's what it feels like. And, and to me... You know you're in for a fight. And, and, and I, was, I was a philosophy student when I first did this. And so one of the things that really I thought was so fascinating was the different approaches 
So for Budvinik, he was kind of the continuation of Steinitz. He wanted to turn chess into a science. Although a lot of the things he did made it more like a sport because he was into the physical training and the, you know, all, all these other kind of things about habits and discipline. But he really thought that chess could be like a solvable scientific problem, really approaching it like the engineer that he was. For Tall, it was an art form, very clear. But not just an art form. To say that Tall was a chess artist is, is actually not correct. He was a chess dramaticist. <laughs> I mean, he was really right. He wasn't writing poetry. He wasn't painting a painting. He was creating a drama. And he was literally trying to make you lose yourself in the melodrama of it all. He was literally trying to overwhelm The deep, dark forest where there is only one way. One, only path for one. And then you had Smyslov, who, like someone of a devout, orthodox belief, saw it as a search for truth. And saw it as a search... Enlightenment's not the right word, because he didn't believe that there was an apex, but he did believe that one could keep going up the mountain. You know, kind of like... You know, in Dante's Purgatorio, you're going up the seven-story mountain right. towards it. You know, as we talked about before we began recording, uh, that's one of the things I like about the Go community, the, mm. the Asian game Go, uh, very popular in China, Japan, Koreas. Um, they view it more as a search for knowledge, a quest for knowledge, right? Yeah. A community of knowledge. I was at a Go tournament one time, mm-hmm. and I'm a complete novice. I, I really don't know what I'm doing. Um, I was at a Go tournament... And I watched this happen. So first of all, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Go. They I've have... seen people play Go, but I don't know how to play it myself. Okay. Historically in chess, as you know, we have a history of handicap games. Hmm? Um, you could probably tell me more than I could tell you about that. You know, players giving up a rook or a knight, knight odds, rook right. odds, pawn odds, etc. Right. Now, interestingly enough, we make the computer give us odds. Um, you know, that's where the hmm. handicap game has gone. Uh playing a handicap between humans is almost extinct. Right. In Go, they do the same thing. Um, you get to start with, in fact, based on your rating in Go, you get to start with potentially multiple extra moves. So you could begin a Go game and have four or five stones already on the board, depending wow. on the strength of your opponent. Um, so they handicap. Mm-hmm. I was watching a game between a very strong player and a middling player. And the middling player, like, in a very intense position, you know, they've, they're deep into the game. What we would probably describe in chess as the late middle game mm-hmm. makes a horrible blunder. And instead of capitalizing, the strong player pauses the clock, shows him why it's a blunder, mm-hmm. and then they continue the game with a different move played. So it's just, I mean, and this idea of a community of knowledge yeah. that, that Smyslov... Um, I, I like that. I like that a lot. That that yeah. greatly appeals to me. I've always been a and a that's that's player. that's that's what I really wanted too. And that's why getting into tournaments was really hard for me because mm-hmm. you know there because there are a lot of people where chess is primarily a sport and mm-hmm. it's primarily a fight. And for them, they they have a very different approach. That and, does seem to be how we look at it very frequently in the United and, States. And and when it's a sport and you're dealing with another guy that's a sport. You know, and I, I can, can understand that because if I'm your opponent, I don't want to be fraternizing with you. This is not about a search for truth. You know, I don't want to help you know more truth because I want to beat you. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're, you're an opponent to be conquered. And for me, I always thought it was better to just everybody get strong together. Um, but again, that's, and it, it's kind of interesting because when I was talking with someone I know by the name of Sean Lay, who's a uh, national master who's up in Toronto, one of the things he told me you know, in terms of having to change my attitude to, uh, you know, 
greatly improve my performance is I need to view it less like the search for truth sometimes. And I just need to be more practical, view it as a sport. You know, don't always be concerned with the truth of position, just win. <laughs> right. Sometimes you just got to win and, and, and narrow, you know, because the thing is, right, like... Yeah, perfectionism at times in chess can be a, a problem. It's a, it's a huge problem. And you also have to play to your strengths. So, for example, if we were in a real actual fight, uh, you know, let's face it, you're taller, you got the reach, right? Like, there are so many different ways. I'm sure you're faster than I am because you're a biker, probably got the twitch muscles. So the only way I could possibly beat you in a savage fight is I would have to use my weight. I would literally have to try to pick you up, which I could probably do. And I would literally have to try to slam you on the ground and fall on top of you. I would, that, that's the only way, right? Uh, and so, and in the same way in chess, you have to figure out what your strengths are and do that, right? Like, cause if we were in a boxing match, let's face it, I'm not out pointing you. I just got to get close enough and hope I get your jaw and hope I can hit you hard enough. Um, and again, you know, well, and let everybody know there's no, uh, there are no hidden threats of violence here. I just want everyone to know that. Uh, let me tell you. I, I feel very threatened. All I, all I I'm terrified right I, now. I, I, I'm sorry. I trigger warnings You fed people. me dinner and now you're threatening to <laughs> body slam me. WWE style. Well, it wouldn't be WWE style because that's actually safe. Ah, <laughs> uh, fair point. Fair point. <laughs> I would, I would, the problem is I would, I would actually hurt you just by botching it. Not even by any malicious intent on my part. Um, but the thing is, is, is that, and that's... To me, that's the difficult thing about it, right? Mm. Is even when I have a best friend, hi Daniel, uh, you know, when we play, it still bothers me because it's like, do I really want to play my best game in this practice game or do I want to hold back this variation when we finally meet each other in a rated right. game and I can get some of those wonderful rating points away from you? And that and that's a difficult that's a difficult thing, and then it becomes personal. And so that's what's so great about, you know. Being able to talk to you, you know, someone who's so many rating points ahead of me as a master, like there's there's nothing, right? There's no way I'm fooling you. I'm not going to have any secret weapons against you. But it allows us to really share knowledge and really, you know, because when I was teaching high school, I was a high school teacher for a number of years before I went back to graduate school. Every single time my students would make a blunder, I would always give them an opportunity. I'd turn the board around. I want them to find the tactic. Right. And then we would keep playing with the with the colors reversed. Right. And I did that because I wanted for me it was just it was about, you know, and and that's the thing. It's it's difficult to take your ego out of the game. But I think that's the other beautiful thing about chess is it it's a history of of egos that of are in egos, the game. <laughs> of egos yeah. that are in the game. And yes. Fisher said that was his favorite thing about chess was crushing, crushing another other guy's game. ego. But at the same time, it's also a quest a lot of time to put one's ego aside in order to be successful. You know, to, to, to share another anecdote, I learned this on Cora, by the way, so it's another plug. There's a great story about Customato. He's the guy who trained Mike Tyson. And Tyson, you know, when he found Tyson, he saw he was the superior specimen kid athlete, someone who he could mold into the world heavyweight champion. But he had a lot of anger. He had a history of abuse. He had a history of criminality, history of emotional problems, all sorts of things. What did Customato do to Tyson that turned him into, you know, when he was the world heavyweight champion, the most feared world heavyweight champion that they'd seen in decades? What what did he do? He taught him to take his ego out of it. And that's the thing, when you see those old interviews of Mike Tyson, where he, you know, where they used to make the joke that Michael Jackson and Mike Tyson have the same speaking voice, uh, <laughs> you know, because he just seemed so mild-mannered and soft and sweet. That wasn't an act. Mm -hmm. He He had actually been trained by this... 
this both strict yet gentle great trainer to take his ego out of the fight and to take his ego out of the sport and to just learn to do all the right things by removing himself and just and just doing it. And unfortunately for Mr. Tyson, his downfall came when Customato died and Don King came over and everyone was about pumping his ego up. And so it's an interesting thing where people take chess very personally because they see it as a measure of their intelligence or their intellect or their understanding. Um, you know, it, it's very, very, very personal when people lose. Um, so it can be very hard to take your ego out of it. But at the same time, it's also that quest. It's great when it's a quest for something higher, you know, when it's a quest for something, for something greater. Because for me, uh, there's just such a joy. Like when I have been looking at a difficult chess problem and I finally get it. And not only do I get it, but I understand it. Right. And, right. and, and there's, there's that, that aha moment. Yes, there's, there's a joy yeah. in conquering that. And I also love doing the Purdy method, you know, where you have the note card with the moves and you, you go down and you're playing through the master games. Right. There's that great moment where you're like, ah, I found Smyslov's move or I found a number of Smyslov's move or according to this book, I, you know, I performed at an A level rather than a B level, you know, and, and things right. like that. There's, there are things about chess that are more than just playing other people. Those exercises of the puzzles and the tactics and, you know, playing through the master games and things like that. It literally is the same way you can love music and mm. the same way you can love... Uh, and I think music's the only thing that really compares because people can read music without hearing it. They can read chess games without seeing it. You know, the really great ones can hear symphonies in their head. You know, and, and that to me... And then people say, well, what, is that, what does that have to do with, with history? What does that have to do with being a historian? And it's the same thing that's true with music. We do know Mozart by his music. But when people start creating things that are works of genius, we have to know more about the person. The context. We ha right. yeah, we have we also to know. know Mozart in the context of his period, right? Yeah, right. we know, and and we feel the we feel the need to know more about the person right. and the things that, that 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 really surrounded it, simply because the music is so good. We feel like there's more there because right. we feel emotion, or there is. And I, although it's true that in order to be a musician or a chess player whose personality really comes through in their play, you probably have to be at a really elite level to get to the point where your personality is really expressing itself in a subtle or refined way. Um, but that's not... Even at the lower levels, you can be more or less aggressive uh, and you can be more or less daring or, or whatever. But there's a desire for more. And, you know, when you... I, I don't feel like anyone can read about the life of Capablanca, which I know you've read... Or read about the life first chess book actually that uh, I ever read. Or, or read about the life of Tartakower, yeah. or Misha Tall, or Lasker, and not, you know, and and if because if you really love chess, like when you you just need to know you need to know more. I mean, it's the same thing in our culture. I mean, we're obsessed with the personal lives of celebrities and athletes. Personally, I don't know why, um, but because um, I really don't care, but. For some reason, but but yet, I love to hear about what made this game of tall go the way it did, or what made right. Mozart write music the way he did. So I guess I just don't care about sports or movies the same way. You know, I think um, I, I I once wrote an article and I had a quote in there. You know, that that said, "quote You know, I read chess books like epic histories." End quote. You know, and the mm -hmm. idea was when you're when you're listening to the notes of a player within the context of the game, within the context of their life, mm -hmm. within the context of the time period and the cultural surroundings mm -hmm. that were occurring, um, it really does read almost like 
like an odyssey. You know, it, it feels like um, this is more than a chess game with notes. This is a, a history on an epic scale of a snapshot in time. And there's nothing else that really compares to that. I Yeah, I agree. Uh, because, you know, chess is the one thing where, you know, the first person to throw a baseball 100 miles an hour was probably Walter Johnson, which is one of the reasons why he was so ahead of everybody else in the 20s. But, you know, and so even though the dimensions of baseball have changed, sports medicine has evolved so much that in some ways it's not comparable, right? In some ways, old baseball, new baseball is not comparable. But in some ways, chess is still comparable because the, 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 even though with the advancement of all the knowledge... Yeah, we have to make sort of like a, the distinction of pre-computer and post-computer. But, but, but I, even, think, I think we'll see that. But even then... There, it's still. But you're right. The integrity of the, the game. Integrity and the integrity of the game yeah. remains, and yeah. and that it, it, the other reason why it also allows you don't have to be six foot seven, two forty, and run a four point three forty yard dash to and also, play a solid game of chess. And also, there's something almost religious about chess, and here's what I mean by that. Religion, when I talk about religiousness, I mean in the context of the philosopher Jasani, meaning it's something that. To be religious is to reconnect, is what kind of the, the origin of the word. And it's the idea of an existential experience, something that happens within me. And that's why, even at the very basic level, even for these kids, when they're annotating their games for the first time, they're still feeling like they're on an epic journey, right. even when they're not in the World Series, right? It's because, you know, in sports you have wins or losses all the time, but... We all see professional. We, we see professional ball players take games off all the time. I mean, you know, even when they're playing, you know what I mean. Long seasons, sure. right? You got to yeah, conserve themselves yeah. um, and things like that. But chess, because chess is, it's one of those things that because it has this level of beauty and sophistication. The only thing I really know how to compare it to is opera, in the sense that opera on the surface it is just kind of a silly performance. You get people getting in these gaudy over-the-top outfits singing often you know the plots are often this these melodramatic adolescent plots they're singing and the the the, the degrees and the changes of emotion are very adolescent but at the same time the art is so good you take it seriously you take it maybe even more seriously than you take anything else because the idea of opera is they're trying to touch upon transcendental ideas oftentimes, mm-hmm. right? The idea that the human experience, there is something transcendental about this existential or religious or transcendental human experience. And chess is one of the very few games, I think, along with Go. Uh, maybe there are a few others. I can't. I think chess and Go are at the top of the mountain, though, where there's something about it that's almost sublime. And because of that, wins and losses, even when it's just between casual players... They can be these defining moments for people because it does, because it it is something that takes place so much within you, so much within your own existential reality, that it's almost like a religious experience. And it it touches you on a way that's so, so personal. And so what's so interesting about chess, when I say as a historian, is it touches upon the individual's experience, but it it touches so many different aspects of just the human experience and, and what it means to be human. And one of the, the things about it is, is that chess is this search for perfection where we're constantly encountering error. That's where all the wins and losses come from. All wins and losses ultimately come from error. Right. And, 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 that, and, that's, and that's 
importantly, human error. Yes, yeah. and that, and that's that's the beauty of it. It's it's almost like I think a chess game between two grandmasters. It's almost like a quest against entropy. I mean, as I said, my strategy to win a game is shuffle the pieces around until the other guy messes up. At the same time, you're also <laughs> playing really strong moves and giving him plenty of chances to mess up. Let's not. It's not like you're never. Yes, attacking. I, I do like leading him into a deep dark forest. Yes. Uh, so let's let's. It's not like you're not attacking, Mr. Carianus. Uh, but uh, by the way, I haven't called you Master Carianus on this podcast. When I was growing up, my sister was <laughs> super into martial arts, and so yes, and, I was and, totally going to make like a sensei joke. And if you and did. so the thing is, is that. I, so I met all her martial arts teacher, and I was taught that I needed to call them by their titles. So I called mm-hmm. Jeff Bruns, Master Bruns, and I call you know Master this, Master that, and it was it was important to do that. And so knowing you're a chess master, and here the first chess master you know that I've really gotten to kind of know and sit and talk with, you know I, I feel as a, a token of respect I deserve to call you Master Carianus, and I want to be somewhat <laughs> different. But I also feel really strong inclination against that because I just don't know if you seem like the guy who knows how to handle that. I just feel you'll just laugh at me like, I don't, I don't know, man. I'm, I, I would probably I'm... try to reach in my bag and see if I could get anything that would substitute as a yellow belt. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, that's that's perfect. And, you know, the thing is, it's the other reason why I want to call you Master Carianus is, Folks, when you right now we're in my my downstairs in my home. You have to understand, I'm trying to flatter this guy as much as possible because I want free lessons so bad. <laughs> like I, I don't know if you guys understand, I am trying to charm this After person. After our last game, though, I don't know. You you really gave me quite the battle. Well, you see, and uh, wow, I'm so glad that's on the record. Yeah, this is on the record. <laughs> Micah gave me quite the battle. I, I was probably losing I, at some point. I, I I feel so good about that, and that that's the thing, you know. Um, for me, as someone who's wildly inconsistent, you know, because uh, in a 25-minute no-increment uh, game, I did win one game against a Fide Master on Lee Chess, and I had it, and I paid him $20 to annotate the game later because I was so excited. Because it, it was a huge moment for me, right? right. I yeah. beat a Master, and yes, it was an online game. Yes, it wasn't in person. Yes, it was just 25 minutes. But I think I did everybody it. who's done that, they remember the first, you know, the first scout. <sighs> Oh man, and the I first title player. and I got it, and and, you know, and the fact is, is that even though it wasn't a rated game, it wasn't in person, wasn't this, it wasn't that, but the point is, it wasn't a blitz game, right? It wasn't a fast game, and what I also appreciated about that master um, is that I had one minute left on my clock. He had like fifteen minutes left in that twenty-five no limit, and he probably could have tried to flag me. I don't know if he would have succeeded, mm. but he could have done it. But when he was really lost, he resigned. And I feel like that was a very classy thing to do. Yeah. Because he could have flagged me. I don't know if it would have worked. But I was also, you know, my, I was so, my heart was so jacked, right? You know, getting um, back, that, it's interesting because that actually gets back to the initial question I asked you about what it means to be a chess historian. And I've been sitting here listening to um, a lot of your discussion. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I keep... Um, hearing, sort of reading between the lines, if you will, is that um, sort of what I described to you about the direction of of the chess underground, there is this culture. And and chess has its own very specific culture. Mm -hmm. When you're in it, you know you're in it. Mm -hmm. You feel it. It pervades everything. It's, It's sort of saturating, if you will. Yeah. And it involves beauty. Mm-hmm. history, um, art, battle, but also these other elements too, like handling a loss or accepting a loss. 
you know, the respect and the, the, the honoring the game enough to resign in a situation right. like that. These are elements that are, in many ways, specific to chess. Mm-hmm. Not, not all games, not all endeavors um, have those elements, and, let's say. And, and also, since it's so deeply personal, as we said, it's quasi-religious in some ways, there's also a certain element, to use again this quasi-theological language, there's also, and we said chess is a quest against one errors, one's own errors, that's not only practical on the chessboard, right. that's also in the moral and ethical sphere. And yeah. in the character sphere. Because you have to not become bitter after the loss. You have to have the good sportsmanship. Yeah. You have to and that's sometimes very difficult to do. Another thing we spoke about before we began recording, and I, I apologize, I hope it's okay that I mentioned no. this, but um, you know chess I came to the realization for myself anyway, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of a lot of players eventually come to realize this. One of the biggest struggles in chess is maintaining control of yourself mm-hmm. in the moment of a game. Mm-hmm. Making sure that you're able to consider all of your options. Sure. Um, you know, keeping calm enough to work your way through difficult moments. Avoiding avoiding tunnel vision. Avoiding it's, tunnel vision. It's so exactly. Hard. Right. You know, self control is 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 the key attribute to playing well. I had a I had a very interesting psychological observation about ten years ago, um, and this is not chess, but it relates to this idea of tunnel vision. I love the film The Dark Knight. I watched it many, many times. I was obsessed with it. I think everybody was for a little while. Anyway, one of the last times I saw it, I went and I saw it at Bradley University. They had a special showing of it. This was about six months after it was out of theaters, but I got to see one of my favorite movies and it was only two bucks, so I, I went and saw it. It was the first time I ever saw the film without surround sound. Um, and anyway, the point of the story is Joker is such an intimidating character in that and this movie. Heath Ledger's Joker. Heath Ledger's Joker. Yeah. Why but, so serious? But I saw that why so serious scene for the first time without surround sound, mm. without that the tension of the cello rising and surrounding me. Right. And all of a sudden I realized he had almost none of the same charisma because it was an object that was over there. It didn't immerse me. Right. And in that moment, I was like, wow, there's insights about tunnel vision. There are insights about depression. There are insights about just needing to just kind of get some distance. Step back and be able to look. Correct. Right. And that was such a... A great analogy for looking at a chess position. And, and to step back. It, it was amazing how much, less, how much less power he had mm-hmm. when, he wasn't, when, when his sound literally wasn't immersing me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like he was actually in my face. Uh, speaking of the whole sportsmanship thing, I know we got to wrap up soon, but I had this wonderful moment at the uh, Greater Peoria Open this week, and I was only able to play two games. In my second game, our clock goes off. It just kind of dies. Mm-hmm. So we go to the arbiter, and he says, well, how much time did you have left? And, uh, you know, my opponent had something like 55 minutes. I thought I had 20. He said I had 15. And, you know, I was in a one bishop versus knight end game. I had the knight, the pawn structure. He was dead. But anyway... I, I still remember the look on the arbiter's face when, like, he sees that we disagreed about how much time I had. And I go, oh, no, that's fine. At 15, right? Yeah. Because it's a 30-second increment. I'm yeah. winning. I know what to do. But I still remember just the look of relief <laughs> yes. on the arbiter's face, yes. right? Because yes. this could have gotten bad, right? Being, being a director, I can tell you that right? that is and, a, a and difficult it, it was it was It was just, I was like, oh, no. I, and I said, no. If he says 15, because 
that was just the last time I saw my clock, and then it right. went off. I don't. So he was probably right, and so I know I, I I trust him. Fifteen, it's fine, and I still I can see that look of relief yeah. on his face, right? Because you know, it's interesting how when you read certain books, and this is why I think there needs to be more chess historians. The most prominent person in oh, we got some music. That must be my phone somewhere. I don't even know. <laughs> My phone must be somewhere, but I don't know where it is. The mysterious phone is. That's okay. Go it must on. be you, mine. You were saying... Um... Pardon me. But the, the, the most prominent chess personality in the histories have been Kasparov and Fisher. Those, are the, those have been the faces of chess. And let's face it, these are not two very sociable individuals. <laughs> these are two, you know, let's face it, at least somewhat narcissistic individuals, partially antisocial, um, very egotistical, very arrogant, not very good sportsmen generally. And this the is historian's kind of, perspective. From the, the yeah, I've met Kasparov, and I, I thought he was rather nice guy. Well, I'm, I'm sure in person he long can time be, ago. I'm sure in person he can be very, very. But I'm term, in terms of his how he's been presented, sure, like like, like sure. this, there's a presentation and very, very ominous to play him. You know, there's the famous uh, the photos of the different faces he makes at the board. Oh, um, sure, you know, the, his, I would certainly feel intimidated. Oh, absolutely, and he's yeah. he, he's a hurricane, right? And and you can't really have a guy portrayed to be a nice guy who's also a hurricane. Right. right. He's, right. He's, he's always going to be a killer, right? Um, I think he would uh, agree that that's a very apt description. And, and so the thing is, is that because of that, and then you read you know, David Shank's The Immortal Game. It's a great book. It was a bestseller. But because of that, chess players are kind of portrayed as a little off, right? There's something like a little off about us or a little antisocial, a little not mainstream about it, or we're too much in our own heads. I think there are many artists who are too much in their own heads, many philosophers, many psychologists, whatever. So the interesting thing about being a chess historian is the idea of wanting to go, you know what, there's actually a whole realm of people because it's neither chess players are not just a bunch of arrogant assholes, nor are they the, you know, the, the, the gentlemen I wish we all were. I would love if we were all a bunch of gentlemen intellectuals searching for the truth of a physician. We're not that either. We're actually kind of the whole gamut. Right. We're the whole gamut of Unsurprisingly. Uh, yeah, and, and we should be. And then, you know... And one of my most popular core answers was, do the majority of American chess players support Donald Trump? And my answer was, I don't know. And more importantly, I don't want to know. <laughs> right? Because, so I, I, you know, that was one of the questions I did have was, what was, uh, what was your most interesting Quora question? Well, that, the one that had the three, like 200 over 200,000 views of what was the worst game of chess. Uh-huh. Oh, know, yes. That, and you showed me the answer to that. And I have never showed anyone who is a master or anyone who is a chess teacher who has not looked at this game and said, this is the worst and ugliest game of chess. I, if you would, you know, back me up on this. Well, it, it definitely was. And I just want to say... Uh, because, you know, obviously here we are constrained by the concept of audio, but they, I'm sure that a listener who was interested could yeah. look this game up, right? You did post the yes, game. Yes, yeah, no, it's you, it's in the answer. It's if you move randomly, you the moves, if right? you move randomly against a grandmaster, would it be easier or harder for the grandmaster to win was the original question. And it ultimately evolved and I, into... And I told, I told that story because I thought this was an example of random moves, right? Like this right. is an example of what random moves would look like. And uh, again, uh, but but... The thing is, is back to the you know. It was a very ugly game of chess. The ugliest, yeah. the ugliest, and you know, and I, I think I can say as my chess accomplishment that I may have participated in the worst game of chess ever played, worse than the two move checkmate. But you know, you've done you've done many aspiring chess players a service because now they can go look at that. <laughs> All right, 
I can do better than that. <laughs> I, this, is, this is this is the bench. I've got this. I, I'm above that. I yeah. can now continue but, onwards but, with my chess discovery the, journey. The, the key, though, about the, you know when someone asks the Trump question is, is that to understand that people oftentimes when they hear about chess, I don't know why the people think of it as a very homogenous group. I think maybe just because they think about everybody's got the glasses, uh, everybody's... Right. Uh, got a glasses or pocket protector. They're not, studying in their laboratory and yeah, they have their nose in a book. And it's 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 absolutely not the case. Yeah, it, I would say particularly in America, we have an extremely diverse population of chess players. And you know, I I'll admit that I'm a snob. I'm not a chess snob. I'm just a snob in general. I'm a guy who likes to listen to classical music and read Dostoevsky and and do that whole thing. You know, I want my German music, my French wine, my Russian literature, and. You know, whatever other pretentious thing I can now say on the podcast, English tea. Uh, but the the thing is, is that with the diversity of the game, uh, <laughs> you, you know, got I've, me. Been, I've been trying to pop you, you now for me. like an hour, and I finally got you. You got me. Uh, but but the thing is, is is that there's so much enjoyment to be had. It's like music, right? right. Everyone can enjoy music. You know, I. Uh, for those people who don't like classical music, if you l- watch the YouTube video of Leonard Bernstein talking about Beethoven's Ninth, you all of a sudden want to hear Beethoven's Ninth if you never have, because he has so much passion for it. So for me, being a chess historian is really about, as a teacher... Passion. Yeah, it's it's about... I, can, I, can, I can't really make anyone be moved by anything. All I can show you is what moved me. Right. I want to know... And there, there, is a, there is a passion in that. I want to know the story of chess better than everybody else so that I can help other people get excited about it. So that they can share my joy, right? Because that's the thing, right? Like, I truly believe that any time you have something that's really beautiful, right, that, that just moves you, if it really moves you, you know, there's something about love and passion that's generative, right? That 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 that, that creates, and because of that, that's why I love. Like, if anyone's like, "Oh, I've never heard of Tartakar," I'm like, "Oh, have a seat. I've never heard of Mishital. Right. I've never heard of." And the stories are so great, and the stories of the struggles are so great. So, anyway, I you know, all I'm going to do is I'm going to make a pitch at the end of this podcast because I'm going to finish up. If you like hearing me talk about chess, I want to do like five more of these. With Master Carianus, so... I, you know, I really am hoping to be able to take you up on a Tardic Hour episode. I think that would be fun. And I will say, Micah, this has actually been really interesting for me. This is the first ever podcast I've done where I've only asked one question. <laughs> well, I can, the, I can go. You the know, only I, question I asked was, what is a chess it was just story? And I mean, I, to be fair, I think you answered that very thoroughly. You know, I mean... Part of that question, um, I was hoping it would be very open-ended, mm-hmm. you know, and I was hoping in listening to you talk, um, some of that passion that you were just describing mm-hmm. in that, you know, the love for the game itself, the history of the game, the the fight of the game, the beauty of the game, the artistry, you know, that would all come out and it certainly did. Well, uh, for those who are interested in, in chess history, just to let everyone know, the place to maybe begin is Kings, Commoners, and Knaves by Edward Winter. He is the king of chess historians. I will point out, he's not always the most exciting read because a lot of his work as a chess historian is debunking all the myths about chess. And oftentimes, that's the best part. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right. Uh, for example, 
One of the most famous chess games of all time is that Marshall prepared his Marshall Gambit against Capablanca in 1918 for years. Edward Winter thoroughly debunked that. But it was such a great story! Right. It was the great story of how, like, you have this novelty that's been prepared and worked on for years, and that Marshall finally unleashes it at Capablanca, but then the overwhelming invincible genius of the Cuban overcomes him over the board, and the greatest defensive thing in the history of chess up to that point, and, you know, uber masterpiece and whatever. And Winner shows clearly, you know, Marshall had many chances in those intervening years to play then play it. And, you know. Right. So he debunks it, and someone's just like, oh, come on. Come on, <laughs> let Edward. Let us have our fun. Let us have our, let us have our fun. I have a question. Does he debunk the tall dollar for an autograph story? I don't know for because sure. Because I like that one. That's it, a great isn't one. Isn't it a great one? Yeah, that is a great yeah, one. Yeah, and, and he, de- he, de- he debunks a lot of them. But, you know, and, and I got to tell you... I, that was my second question. I yeah, ruined it. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I I think I, I think the thing is, is there's probably some... I do think that Miguel Nydorf did say to Tall, Fisher would have charged 50. I do think that part of the story is true. And I do think it's part of the story is true that Tall like went around and then gave a bunch of autographs. I don't know if he actually paid right. people to take his autographs. It wouldn't surprise me. But, but it wouldn't surprise him. It uh, wouldn't surprise me. But, you know, there, there are so many of these, these stories that... They only have to be in one source, and then they get, you know, they get thrown around. So, I would also say, I wouldn't call myself a classical historian. I mean, I'm not necessarily all that interested in that kind of truth. Sometimes I'm interested in what makes the story better and what helps you understand the greater context, right? Because right. there are some stories that, even though they're not factually true, like parables do, mm-hmm. they help us to understand better the overall the overall picture. And that that to me is. Uh, so I may be a collector of stories, is, and as befitting someone who has got just got his MA in English lit. That makes sense. Well, Micah, this has been really fun. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I I enjoy uh, I enjoy talking and hearing myself. Actually, no, I don't enjoy <laughs> hearing myself talk. I enjoy talking though because I know as soon as I hear this podcast, I'll be like, oh no, I sound ah. So you know. That's how it always happens. I, I would, I really would like to uh, maybe try to work out a Tardicower one down the road, but um, in the meantime, this has been wonderful. I'm, Thanks for spending some time with me. Thank you very much, Mr. Curios. Thank you for listening to the Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday, and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. Until next time, signing off, Pete Karyanis.